0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You'll notice there's a significant number of Christmas decorations here in the foyer and in the sanctuary. Angie Reed and Aaron Moore have led a team to um, get these decorations up, and they spent a lot of time here on Friday, I think it was, And so, good job, uh, decorating team. looks beautiful in here and out in the foyer. Uh, Be sure to extend your thanks to them uh, for what they have done. Um, Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, verses 18 through 25. Um, You might... Uh, have wondered, maybe it occurred to you as we've been singing songs here this morning, maybe you've been wondering why are we singing all these songs about the cross of Jesus and the death of Jesus when this is Advent, it's Christmas season, why are we singing all these songs about Jesus' death? Well, it's appropriate that we remember that um, the shadow of the cross is always cast over the birth of Jesus in the manger, uh, Jesus was born into this world for a specific purpose, and it was to go to the cross, to die, to atone for sins, and to be resurrected from the dead. And the reason why he had to do that is because this is a really messed up world. Our world is broken, our world is plagued by sin and injustice. And that was brought to our attention, wasn't it, in pretty vivid detail this past week as we observed all the events that took place in Ferguson, Missouri, um, particularly after the grand jury on Monday night chose not to indict uh, a white police officer who, back in August, uh, shot dead a black teenager. And the grand jury decision not to indict this police officer has sparked a number of protests this past week. A number of businesses in Ferguson were burned on Monday night. Um, On Friday, I understand there were protesters still in a variety of locations in St. Louis, even in the malls, some of the malls were having uh, to close. (coughs) There were protests not just in St. Louis, but throughout the nation, and uh, I think this picture here kind of captures all that took place this past week. Here's a woman named Natalie DuBose, owned a bakery in Ferguson. Her bakery was uh, burned down, and here she is in tears um, as she reflects on what has happened, and you look at her face, and you can see uh, the suffering written on that face. Now this sermon, I want to be very clear, is is not going to be a big sermon on Ferguson. Uh, I'm I'm not writing this sermon to address that particular situation. I know there's a lot of different feelings about what's happened there. I think people in this congregation have a lot of different convictions about that. I bring that up because that situation in Ferguson happens to bring to light what our text this morning is about. And This text in 1 Peter addresses this question, and that is, how do we respond, as Christians in particular, but how do we respond when we perceive that there has been injustice in our lives? How do we respond when we feel that we've been treated unjustly? And this is what Peter is addressing here. Now, we're returning this morning to our 1 Peter sermon series, uh, which we um, ended temporarily, in August, I think the last sermon on First Peter was August 3rd, right before we came into this new building. We took a detour, did a couple quick, quick sermon series um, to highlight our uh, new sanctuary and our adjustment to that. But one of the things we like to do here at New Life is just take a book of the Bible and just go through it, just one passage at a time, and hear what God has to, to say to us. And so, that's what we're doing. And we're just picking up here where we left off back in August. So, we're picking up here in chapter 2 verse 18, and just to kind of remind you about what Peter is writing, or the situation that Peter is writing into, he's writing to Christians in the first century in a place called Asia Minor, and these Christians were in a position where they were finding themselves increasingly marginalized in the culture. The culture in which they were living was getting increasingly hostile and aggressive and critical of their way of life. And it's clear from Peter's writings that there have been suffering uh, among a lot of these Christians, that a lot of them have been feeling like they've been treated unjustly. And so Peter here is writing to them, and in verses 18 through 25, he says something that might surprise us, that might be a little bit hard to hear, a little bit hard to accept. What Peter tells Christians in the face of unjust suffering is that they are not to fight back and they are not to revolt, but instead they are to bear up and patiently persevere and endure in the midst of their suffering. And he goes on to say that this is actually part of what it is to be a Christian. This is what Christians are called to do to receive unjust suffering and to bear up patiently and persevere under it. Now, maybe you didn't have your house burned down, or maybe you didn't have riots and protests in your neighborhood, but you probably know something of what it's like, where you feel like you're doing the right thing in a situation. You've had temptations to do the wrong thing, and you've resisted those temptations. You've been faithful to God in some way or another, and the result is that you're paying for it somehow. You're suffering as a result of your obedience. Not because you've done something wrong, but because you've done something right. And you're thinking to yourself, this is not right, this is unjust. And in your heart, you're plotting your revenge. You're figuring out how you can get back at these who have hurt you. And it's that kind of attitude that Peter is addressing here in 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. So let's read this. If you have your Bibles, please stand. Uh, I would um, encourage you to have a Bible. If you, if you don't, I just want to uh, encourage you to bring your Bibles to church because we will be looking at these texts in some detail. It will help you to have the Bible before you. We do have the passage before you uh, on the screen if you don't have your Bible so that you can follow along. 1 Peter 2, 18-25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God, please add Your blessing and favor to the preaching of Your Word for the building up of Your church and the glory of Your Son. In His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're considering here today the call to unjust suffering, this call that God has given to us as Christians. And I'm going to take a look at this from three angles. The first is when do we bear up under unjust suffering? We'll also consider how we do this, and then lastly, why we're called to do this. So, how. Excuse me, when, how, and why. So first of all, when are we called to um, take on this kind of an attitude? Uh, Let me just begin by just asking or just thinking a little bit about when it is we suffer. You know, suffering comes to us for a number of different reasons. Sometimes there's just natural reasons why we suffer. We get sick, we get old, and that brings a certain amount of suffering. Sometimes we suffer... Because we do the wrong thing. We sin, we're disobedient to God or to somebody else, and we suffer. And you'll see in verse 20 that Peter says, you don't get any credit for that. (laughs) Uh, Verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So, you know, a husband cheats on his spouse, Um, a child lies to her parents, Uh, A student plagiarizes um, a term paper and they get in trouble and the result is suffering and they begin to feel sorry for themselves because of their suffering. And what Peter is saying here is, what good is that? You don't have any reason to pity yourself if you're suffering as a result of your own disobedience. But there's another reason why sometimes Christians are called to suffer and he goes on in verse 20 to mention this. He says, uh, starting in the middle of verse twenty. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is you're 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 in a situation, and you're you're being as honest as you can. You're you're a hard worker. You are um, you're faithful you're keeping yourself sexually pure. You are denying yourself what you could rightfully have so that others could have what you could have. And the result of this is that for some bizarre circumstances, you lose a job or you lose a friend. And now you're in a position of loneliness or Maybe you have counted on a potential spouse, and because of some actions you've taken in obedience to God, that person's been lost, and now you're lonely, and you're set apart, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm doing the right thing, and now I'm suffering. That's what Peter is talking about here. And, and, and what he's saying here, again, is that this is something that we as Christians are called to experience. You see that in verse 21? It's very clear. To this you have been called. Throughout the book of 1 Peter, there's a lot of emphasis on what we're called to as Christians. As Christians, we are called to uh, an inheritance that is undefiled and unfading and imperishable. And we are called to the salvation of our souls. We're called to a living hope. We are called out of darkness into the light. And now, Peter adds, we're also called to be prepared to suffer unjustly. That's kind of a shocking thing to hear, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't seem fair. We recited the Nicene Creed a moment ago. Um, the Nicene Creed was written. Creed was written in the fourth century, and um, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, this creed was written uh, as a result of an assembly of about 318 delegates. And every one of those people present, aside from just 12, all but 12 of them, had some kind of physical evidence of having been tortured for their faith. Some of them had a lost limb. Some of them had a lost eye. Some of them had a limp. All but 12, more than 300 of these individuals who came together to formulate this creed, the most widely recited creed in the history of the Christian church. One observer said it was like an assembled army of martyrs. They'd been doing the right thing, And yet they were suffering for it. And Peter is saying something here to you who feel that way, to them who endured that suffering. He says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If that's the position you're in, you're doing the right thing, not doing the wrong thing, and you're suffering for it. I don't know if this brings comfort to you or help to you. I just want to share with you what the Bible says. It says God looks on you and he says that is a gracious thing. That is a special thing. Thing. What's going on right here is a testimony to my grace at work in those people's lives. It's It's a good thing. The Bible says. Peter says. Now, we might ask ourselves at this point where is it that we see? Where is it that we see injustice in particular most vividly in our culture, in our world? And I think certainly the institution of slavery would be an example of that, where we see injustice, perpetrated practice in a horrible way. That this needs to be brought up because this is the context of this passage. If you'll back up with me to verse 18, you see how the passage begins? It says, servants be subject to... To your masters, with all respect, again, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, even to those who are treating you unjustly, he commands them, be subject to them. Now, I'm reading from the ESV that says, servants at the start of verse 18. If you have an NIV, it actually says, slaves, slaves, be subject to your master. Um, if any of you have seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, um, you have seen some horrific things. That's a hard movie to watch. It captures the horrors and the injustices of slavery as it was practiced in this country, particularly uh, in the 19th century. I think it's important to point out that in this passage, as Peter is addressing these servants or slaves, that's not the same kind of slavery that was taking place here in the first century. And that's why these versions are kind of disagreeing as to what they should call, should it be servants or slaves? Slaves is probably a little bit too strong of a word, particularly as Americans, because we read into that what we know about slavery, how it took place in our country, and that's not quite accurate. But servants here is probably a little too weak, too. It's not like he's just talking to you know, waiters or, or busboys. You know, there's something you know, more akin to what we understand slavery to be. Um, at work here. Um, Just to tell you a few things about slavery, as it existed in the Roman Empire in the first century, about 85% of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. And um, there were certain privileges that slaves had then that they have never had in this country. Slaves could own private property Um, They could um, start their own business. They could make money and save money and then use that money to purchase their freedom. Um, They could, uh, well, they were protected by the laws of the Roman Empire, so there were certain safeties that were uh, secured for them. So there was a lot of advantages for slaves in this time that slaves in this country didn't have. But still... Slavery at this time was involuntary. It's not like these people chose to be slaves. Often they'd been maybe kidnapped or they'd been captive in a previous war and their families had just been held as slaves and now the descendants at this time are are still in slavery. They didn't have any legal rights and very often their masters could be harsh. That's what we see there in verse 18. Not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust, to the harsh masters. So it's not like slavery was an easy thing there, but probably not as bad as it was in this country in the 19th century. But nonetheless, as we look at this, I mean, some red flags might be going off for you right now, and it's just like, I can't believe that the Bible is just talking about this issue of slavery and just acting like it's no big deal, and just talking to slaves as if that's just a normal thing. And in fact, a lot of people will look at a passage like this, and they'll say, the Bible clearly... Commends, condones, accepts slavery. And there's a lot of people today who won't believe in the Bible and they won't become Christians for this very reason. The Bible clearly condones slavery, they say. Now, is that true? It's not true. It's not true. And let me show you some passages um, that, that address this question Does the Bible condone slavery? the answer is is no here's a few passages here's what jesus says in luke chapter 4 beginning of his earthly ministry he reads from the book of isaiah and he says this the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives he's here to free those in slavery that's one of the reasons that jesus came Here's um, Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It was very common in the first century during this time to believe that Uh, Masters had some sort of qualitative superiority to their slaves. Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, believed that slaves were inherently inferior to their masters. And into that climate, Paul says this, no, slave or free, before God you have equal standing in Christ Jesus. A radical, revolutionary thing for the Bible to say in a culture that widely accepted slavery. Here's one more thing, this is in the book of Revelation, and this passage is about Babylon and you might know that Babylon is a symbol of everything that's wicked and uh, opposed to God's ways, and here John writes that the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, that is Babylon, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. People aren't doing business with with Babylon anymore. And these cargoes included gold and silver and precious stones and pearls, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. Babylon was known for having slavery. And what Revelation is saying is the day is going to come when Babylon is going to be brought down. And one of the practices that will be eliminated is the practice of slavery as it's mentioned here in Revelation 18. And there are other passages that would affirm um, exactly what I'm saying here. The Bible does not condone slavery. So, you might say then, well, why doesn't Peter then call for the overthrow of the system and challenge the status quo and try to get slavery overturned? Why Why doesn't he call for that? And that leads us to the second point, which is how? How do we bear up under unjust suffering? How do we do this? Where do we get our cues for exactly what this looks like? So stick with it. I just asked a question why did Peter not call for the overthrow? H- hang with me. Keep that question in mind. I'll get back to it. But I got to talk about some other things first. How do we bear up under unjust suffering? The answer to that is by following Jesus. Example, very clearly there in verse 21, for to this you've been called unjust suffering because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Now, that word for example is an interesting one. It's, it's a Greek word that actually refers to a teaching tool that was used for children at this time where there were letters that were given to the children, and the children would trace over the letters and learn how to form their characters by tracing over these characters. That's the root of this word for example. And so what Peter seems to be saying is that Jesus' life is the pattern over which you and I ought to be tracing our own lives. The the, the idea here is, is seeking to match Jesus' life as best as we possibly can, to trace our lives over His with specific reference to Jesus' suffering. That's what it says, right? For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. It's in His suffering that we're giving an example. It's the steps He took towards suffering that are the steps we are also to take in following Him. That's what Peter's saying. Now, this isn't a call for us to go to the cross and, and, and die for sins. There are certain kinds of suffering that Jesus endured that, that we can't. But we know that Jesus' suffering extended beyond just being on the cross. Jesus was unjustly accused. He was, God went through a, an unfair process. Trial. He had people who misunderstood him. He was constantly harassed and criticized. He suffered a lot of injustices, and yet he did it without sin, verse 22 says. No sin in the way Jesus endured these injustices. And as Peter goes on, he seems to emphasize the way that Jesus didn't sin. The way he refused the temptation to sin was specifically with regard to his speech I mean, isn't this where we very often tend to speak out of turn? We feel like we're being attacked. We feel like something's unfair, and our mouths open up, and we say all kinds of things. You know, it's our words, it seems, are the first line of attack for us when we feel like we're unjustly accused, but not for Jesus. Look what it says. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't say bad things about others that were false. He didn't stretch the truth about others. When he was reviled, that word for reviled means abusive speech. When he received abusive speech, he didn't give abusive speech in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He didn't open his mouth and say, I could call down a legion of angels to destroy all of you right now. He would have been in perfect, his perfect rights to say exactly that. He could have said that. It would have been right for him to say that. He wouldn't have sinned if he said that, but he didn't say that. He suffered, and he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He knew that God was going to bring about justice for him in his resurrection. He knew that was going to happen, and so he entrusted to God the revenge that you and I probably would normally want to take. I had uh, an experience a little while ago. I was Coming back home, I was driving through my neighborhood, and I stopped at a stop sign, and there was a person stopped uh, at the stop sign across from me, and it was kind of a strange intersection, a number. It wasn't just a basic four-way intersection. There were a number of roads there. But uh, I stopped, and I wanted him to come. I wasn't going to go until he came. You know when you get to that place where you're you're looking at each other, okay, who's going to go, and you're both kind of sitting there waiting for each other? And I guess I was just feeling kind of stubborn, and I was like, I'm not gonna go, I'm gonna wait for him. So I just sat there, and he just sat there. And it was like five, six, seven, eight seconds went by, and no one's going anywhere. And, and I'm kind of going like this in my window, I'm waving him on, and so finally, finally he goes, and, and he comes, and as he drives toward me, I see his window starts to roll down. And I'm thinking, oh, it's a friend of mine. And, and, and he's gonna say hello. And the guy sticks his head out the window and just, you know, utters something that I can't repeat in church. You know, utters this obscenity. And I'll tell you, this is what happened in my heart. When that happened, my thought was, I'm going to turn this car around and I'm going to go chase that guy down. I'm just going to follow as closely as I can behind his bumper and just make him worry just make him wonder what I'm going to do. I mean, if he were to stop and get out, I mean, I probably would have turned around and drove away. You know, I, I had no idea what I was going to do if he would have faced me, but it was my inclination. It was like, who are you to talk to me that way? I am going to get my revenge on you. I, I was trying to do a good thing, right? I was just trying to let him go first. I was just trying to be polite, and i get cussed out for it. And my inclination was <coughs> to go after him. Do you see how different that is than jesus that is that is not the way jesus reacts jesus in mark 15 he's spit on he's beaten guards are giving him blows they're putting the crown of thorn on his head they're dressing him in purple they're making fun of him they're saluting him they're kneeling down to him mocking him and he doesn't say anything doesn't say anything That old Negro spiritual, do you know about this? Um, Never said a mumbling word. Nailed him to a tree, pierced him on his side. Blood came trickling down. He bowed his head and died, and he never said a mumbling word. That's how Jesus dealt with unjust suffering. He refused to retaliate verbally. So, going back to the question, why isn't Peter calling for the overthrow of the system? Because according to the New Testament, according to Peter, there's there's a better way. There's there's an approach that is unique and unusual. It's, It's a radical approach. And it's for God's people to bear up under unjust suffering, keeping our mouths shut. That's what Peter seems to be saying here. I mean, let's, as hard as that might be to hear, I know there's a lot of questions in people's minds. What do you, how can that be in this situation, in that situation? Here's what I can say to you. We have to at least acknowledge that our salvation, in large part, is owed to one who refused to speak up and refused to overthrow the system. Our salvation is owed to one who said, no, I'm not going to overturn this. I'm going to submit to this suffering and entrust to God the justice that I long for. And God honored that, resurrected him from the dead. But you and I are saved because Jesus, in part, didn't overthrow the system. Now, I know there's a lot of questions like, what I mean, are there exceptions to this? I mean, are, are there times when we should rise up? Are, are there times when we should resist? I think there are exceptions, but if we come up with exceptions, we have to make sure that the exceptions are biblical, not just based on our feeling, but based on what the Bible says. So let me show you this. Here's 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says this about slaves. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So Paul does say if it's an opportunity for a slave to not be a slave and to gain his or her freedom, that person ought to do it. But here's something else that I think is very instructive. This is Acts chapter 5. This is about Peter, the same Peter who wrote this passage that we're talking about here this morning. And look what happened in Peter's life. Uh, Shortly after Pentecost... Here's Peter hearing from the Jewish authorities. They say, we gave you strict orders, Peter, not to teach in this name, not to preach the gospel. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You disobeyed us. Yet you resisted authority and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, Peter and the apostles then reply. They don't, they don't apologize, do they? They just say, look, we've got to obey God rather than human beings. Our ultimate responsibility is to obey the authority of God, not to obey the authority of a structure or a system or a government. So there are exceptions to this. And I just think it takes a lot of work for us to prayerfully and in conversation and listening to one another work through how do we apply this. As I think of my own personal situation, as we see things kind of changing in our culture, I guess it would go like this. If the government were to say to, to me, you can't preach the gospel anymore, you can't talk about Jesus, I would resist that. I would say, sorry, I've got to obey God rather than men. But if I got arrested for that and taken to jail, I would probably just go with them. I'd just go to jail. I wouldn't resist that. I I I think that's a way to kind of put this into proper balance. So how do we challenge an unjust system? And I think the answer that Peter would give to us is just simply this, you know, believe in Jesus, become a Christian. I mean, if you you want to resist the system, be a Christian. Turn from your sin, repent of your wickedness and your disobedience, believe in Jesus, and then devote yourself to following in His steps. Submit yourself to His Lordship. And that is one of the most radical things that you can do in this culture. You wanna be countercultural? Be a devoted, committed Christian. Here's what a guy named uh, Miroslav Volf says. <clears throat> he says, the call to follow the crucified Messiah was in the long run much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortation to revolutionize them would have ever been. So this is kind of answering the question, why didn't Peter call for the overthrow of an unjust system? If the Bible speaks against slavery, God doesn't like slavery, how come Peter doesn't call for us to overthrow it? I think Wolf here is summing up what Peter is saying, because there's there's a better way. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. That is it subverts oppressive structures. Allegiance to a crucified Messiah is an act of rebellion against oppressive structures. So that, that's how Peter is calling us to bear up under unjust suffering. But there's one last thing here, and that's the question why? Because some of you might be saying, this, just is, this is ridiculous. This is insane. You're telling me that I'm just going to submit myself to people who are oppressive upon me and taking advantage of me? Bosses that treat me poorly and governments that disrespect me? Why would anybody do that? And I think the answer is here at the end of the passage, verses 24 and 25. What Peter is doing here in these last several verses is he's quoting from Isaiah 53, the passage we heard from that Josh read to us before confession and assurance. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of what's called the suffering servant. That, that's what that, past, that chapter is called. It's the, a chapter about the suffering servant. And what Peter is saying here, and I don't have time to go in and show you every verse and how it connects to Isaiah 53, but I think Isaiah 53 is quoted three or four times here. In different ways. But what Peter is saying is that Isaiah 53, the prophecy about the suffering servant, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the suffering servant. That Jesus is God in the flesh who took the role of the suffering servant. God himself became a suffering servant And just as we interchange servants and slaves, I don't think it's pushing it too much to say this. God assumed the role of a suffering slave for you. God came into this world and lived a slave's life for you. Have you ever heard anything more astounding than that? That the God of the universe would become a slave for you and for me, Peter goes on, verse 24, he tells us what God in Jesus did. He died a slave's death, it says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's a reference to the cross and fulfillment of a passage in Deuteronomy 21, which talks about the curse of God being on one who hangs on a tree. And when he... Um, He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. What this is telling us is what we tell you every single Sunday here at New Life. Here it is. Here is the only place in the New Testament, actually, where Isaiah 53 is kind of opened up and explained in terms of the cross, in terms of the atonement. It's the only place right here. But Peter makes it very clear that when Jesus died on the tree, what happened for those who trust in Him is that your sins were charged to His account. (laughs) That everything wrong and disobedient, that all of your unfaithfulness and your lust and your idolatry and your hate and your anger and your revenge and all of your misspoken words, all of it was laid upon Him. That He bore your griefs. He carried your sorrows. All of your iniquities were put to His account. So now God the just is satisfied when he looks on Jesus and he looks to you and he says you are pardoned and completely forgiven because of what this man did for you. That's what this passage is saying. Substitutionary atonement is the central, most primary thing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus did. And what Peter is saying here is that if you believe that, if you understand the significance of that, if you understand the weight of your sin, and the glory of having all your sin wiped away, what you will want to do is follow in the footsteps of that suffering servant. You will want to do it. And that might be one of the ways you can really kind of discern, how how close am I to God? Do I want to follow God just so long as I get everything that I'm looking for, just so long as my life is comfortable, just so long as all my prayers are answered? Or are you willing to say, you know what, I'm going to follow Him all the way, even to the cross, and even to glory. One last thing here to point out about what this passage says. You know, what this is talking about here is God going to the cross as a slave, dying a slave's death, And we have something here that is so remarkable and so encouraging to anybody who feels oppressed, anybody who feels under the weight of unjust structures or people. Here's what commentator Karen Job says. The Son of God has dignified even the lowliest in society by becoming like them in His incarnation. Peter points to Jesus Christ as the true model for how to live a significant life dignified life of freedom even in the midst of the most oppressive situations. That's exactly what he did. He lived in the most oppressive situations, yet he remained without sin, entrusting his future to God who judges justly, obeyed the Father, went all the way to the cross and received the glory of his bodily resurrection. That's why we should be willing to bear up under unjust suffering. I just think this is a passage that we will probably be reflecting on more um, as a church, particularly if our culture continues to kind of unravel. Um, that's why we need each other as a church, why we need to stay close in conversation in prayer and encouragement and mutual affirmation. Let me just close, friends, by just assuring you that if you're in a position in your life, you're doing the right thing, you're refusing to do the wrong thing, and you're suffering for it, friends, it's it's not because God's angry with you. It's not because God has forgotten you. It's because you belong to Him. It's because you're walking in His footsteps. And you, too, can entrust yourself to this one who promises to judge justly. And the day is coming when Jesus will return and He is going to vindicate all the righteous. And justice will be done. We have that assurance. Justice will be done. Let's pray. Lord God, we um, read this passage and um, we simply ask, Father, for an extraordinary outpouring of abundant grace that we might live obediently to this, that we might follow in the footsteps of our suffering Savior in the assurance and full promise that resurrected glory is ours in Him. We praise You and thank You for that. It's in His name we pray. Amen.